everybody. I'll changing position. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to The Skinny on your station, 88.5 WMNF. I am your host, Ben Montgomery, and I, as you know, am typically joined by Creative Loafing's Ray Roa and Mitch Perry from the Florida Phoenix. Those fellas are busy, so you're stuck with me solo this hour, but we've got a good show lined up for you. Up first on the skinny, uh, on Tuesday morning at 4.30 a.m., dozens of Tampa crime survivors will board buses and set off for the state capitol, where they'll join more than 400 fellow crime survivors and families and murder victims from across the state for something called Survivors Speak Florida, organized by Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. They'll hold a press conference and hit the halls in Tallahassee to lobby, urging lawmakers to expand support for crime victims and their families and pass reforms they say will help break cycles of crime in our communities. This year, they're supporting some bipartisan bills and regulations that would right-size penalties for low-level probation violations to improve public safety, increase access to sealing low-level misdemeanor records to get people back to work, and fund expanded crime, uh, crime recovery services to serve crime victims across the state of Florida. And we're going to talk to a couple of them this morning. Joining us today from this group are yeah, local uh, tra- uh, trauma and violence expert LaDonna Butler. You know when you do a standby, and then as soon as I got on that plane, I didn't understand how tired I was. I knocked out. A licensed I, I, mental I health uh, counselor and co-founder of The Well. Watching one of those new and Alliance for Safety and Justice State Director Subash Katil. Uh, are you both there? Down, you know. Yeah, I've been I've been in Newark all week. Our our like, guests with us all now. Meetings for three days, and it was like, mm. like, and it's, it was cold. I'm not used to that cold anymore. Even though I'm, I'm from up north, I'm not. Used having to a little that. bit of technical difficulty. Uh, bringing on our guests now, Subash and Ladonna Butler. <laughs> Can you guys hear me? Well, we're back to sixty-eight. I. Sorry, folks, we're having just a little bit of technical difficulties. We try to figure our Zoom call out with LaDonna Butler, who's a licensed mental health counselor and co-founder of The Well in St. Pete, and uh, Alliance for Safety and Justice State Director Subash Katil. Are you all with us? Yes, we are. Good morning. Oh, hi. Good morning. Got your both. You're there, LaDonna? Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Fantastic. Forgive us listeners for that technical difficulty. We're glad to have these guests with us. So I just told folks that you guys will be leaving 4.30 a.m. on Tuesday to head to Tallahassee to start some lobbying for uh, some bipartisan crime bills. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about this. What is, uh, what, uh, what is, uh, what, what's the plan for next week? What are you guys going to be doing? Um, that's a lot. That's a large question. So I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak from the survivor um, space um, and provider space that we will be sharing our stories in a way that allows um, those who represent us to understand some of the needs that we have regarding safety, access to healing resources, and opportunities for folks to be able to live safely um, and equitably in our community. So when we uh, show up to the Capitol, we are excited about the level of education, um, advocacy, and story sharing about what is most important to us as survivors. As a provider myself, um, I share a unique 
um, perspective because not only am I a crime survivor, I'm also a mental health provider. So being in the space where others are sharing what has helped them in their journey, their recovery journey, um, is quite profound um, looking at from a clinical perspective. And then to watch people share their stories in a way that is impacting the way that we exercise policy and have that responded to in a positive way, how that lifts the human spirit and encourages shared safety among all. So basically what we're going to go do, share our stories, educate our folks, and advocate for policies that help keep all of us safer. And these include uh, right-size penalties for low-level probation violations to improve safety, uh, increasing access to sealing low-level misdemeanor records to get people back to work, and funding expanded trauma recovery services to serve crime victims across Florida. What are the where's the where's the disconnect between uh, what plays out in the streets and what our legislators uh, legislators work on in Tallahassee? What do they need to hear? Thank you. I think that's a very important uh, question. And 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 one thing I think want to highlight, you know, crime survivors for uh, safety and justice represents thirteen thousand crime victims across the state of Florida. And every year we bring 300 folks to the state capitol, you know, several hundred folks to the state capitol for uh, for Survivor Speaks, which, you know, as Dr. Butler so eloquently put, is 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 a space for healing and also to elevate voices about a new vision of public safety. And what that new vision of public safety for us really highlights is the need for the healing process of communities and survivors that have been harmed by crime to be a priority for our public safety system but also our public safety system for it to function and keep us all safe has to prioritize um, ensuring that individuals that exit the justice system do so better than when they went in. And I think that the the third component of that is ensuring that, that you know, our justice system is an expensive system. Um, and for that expensive system to work and work effectively to keep us all safe, we need to spend fewer resources on folks that have not caused harm in our community. So I think that's where that's whether it's a disconnect or a real need to just re-envision and um and and recenter our, our justice system on the needs of survivors and the needs of of safety. Uh, th- th- that that's why we're here and that's why we're going to Tallahassee. And we're talking about right sizing penalties for low level probation violations. What is the uh, what, what what's the do do you have anecdotes that sort of support uh, what you're working for in this regard? Yeah, so there are there there are several thousand folks in the Florida State Prison System um, for what we would call technical violations of probation, which mm-hmm. means broken a new law they haven't harmed anyone and you know like one thing i will always say is that survivors want folks that cause harm in communities to be held accountable and at the same time uh there are there are, are plenty of folks in the florida state prison system that are in there for technical violations of probation at the same time the state legislature in its wisdom and partially because in part because of the voices that were raised from crime survivors for safety and justice uh in 2018 passed a bill that uh, that began to expand an alternative sanctioning program uh, uh, throughout the state. And what all an alternative sanctioning program means is that you're giving multiple options and more options uh, to the justice system, to judges and probation officers to hold individuals accountable when they violate technical violations of probation. And this bill would expand the alternative sanctions program uh, so that so that prison isn't the only option for holding folks accountable for what are technical and minor violations of probation. What are the alternatives besides prison? 
You know, the alternatives could mean a change in reporting requirements. It, it could mean changes to, to the drug t- testing requirements and more stringent d- drug testing requirements. And sometimes the, 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 the accountability could include short, short stays in jail. You know, but but it, the point of it is is that you create multiple options and you and you create graduated options. So it's not it's just not a one size fits all approach that doesn't keep anyone safe and often disrupts lives of folks that are trying to put their lives back together. And that one size fits all approach is is often what lawmakers uh, are stuck dealing with, right? Um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, uh, 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 what is it called? Uh, where, where you sentencing guidelines, right? Uh, where, where you're where a judge is stuck uh, sentencing someone who's committed a crime or been convicted of a crime to uh, w- without relief, without being able to uh, uh, send them into a uh, some other program besides prison. Is that right? Their hands are tied legally. And, and where we want to really spend time on is where we think the legislature has really tried to put an emphasis on improving and changing. And so the legislature has for several years looked at the probation system and looked at the alternative sanctions program as something, as a, as a place that can be improved. And so we really want to build on the fact that the legislature is tr- really trying to improve the probation system and has done so for the past few sessions, right? And so that's 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 why we're starting um, with the probation system and seeing how we can right-size it by addressing this issue of, of, of safety and ensuring that we have a better functioning system for addressing technical violations that isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Can you tell us about successes you've had in past years in this uh, campaign? Yes, great. Thank you. Um, so in, in, in 2018, the legislature passed probably the biggest uh, changes to the criminal justice system in 20 years that did a, a number of things. One of the things it did is it expanded the alternative sanctioning system statewide. Uh, the the second thing it did is it expanded some access uh, uh, to licensing for folks exiting the justice system that wanted to become um, barbers, beauticians, contractors, septic tank workers, so on and so forth, so that folks coming out of the justice system can get out of the system and get back to work, and that keeps us all safe. And then the third thing that the bill did, it did a lot of things, but the third thing that we're very proud of is it expanded, um, it expanded application times for victims' compensation. Victims' compensation is this program that the state helps administer with partial federal funds, um, uh, that enables you, if you're the victim of a crime, uh, to be able to apply for help to pay for funeral costs, therapy, relocation costs, uh, and so on and so forth. For a long time, uh, you had to apply for victim's compensation within a year of being the vi- victim of a crime. And you know, when you're the victim of a violent crime, you're thinking of a lot of things in the world, not what to apply for. So a lot of folks were locked out of the system because of that. In 2018, the legislature expanded that time from one year to three years to give survivors some breathing room so they can get the best service they, they could, to, you know, to be able to get access to therapy, to be able to be able to bury a loved one with dignity without breaking the bank, and also for relocation costs, so on and so forth. Um, that was one thing. Last year, uh, we worked with the legislature to pass a, a, a series of bills. The two that I will highlight is one that ensured that folks that had arrest records that were sealed at the statewide level would have the ability to have them sealed at the county level so that arrest record, an arrest record, not a conviction, wasn't disqualifying and wasn't, you know, kind of uh, a, a bad mark on you when you're trying to apply for a job, right? That's one. But it also the, the other thing um, that was 
that we're very proud of in the legislature last year was a bill called Curtis's Law that enabled family members of homicide victims um, and where the homicide victim was was a minor child and the case was still unsolved to be guaranteed access to basic information about the status of the homicide case. So they were prevented up until this new bill from receiving that basic information about a homicide case? There's, there's no state law man, ma- mandating you know, basic information, and, you know, the name, the number, homicide detective, being able to get basic access to updates on your case, knowing, you know, what are the personal effects of, 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 of your murdered child are, you know, um, are in custody, you know, th- things such as that. And this was this Curtis's law was able to mandate that you get access to basic information when your child has been murdered and there's an unsolved homicide. If you're just li- uh, tuning in, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF, uh, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or send us a message at dj at wmnf.org. And right now we're speaking with local trauma and violence expert LaDonna Butler, a licensed mental health counselor and co-founder of The Well in St. Petersburg and Alliance for Safety and Justice State Director Subhash Katil. Um, uh, Ms. Butler, how, uh, so, so one of the things you'll be fighting for in Tallahassee is funded, uh, funding for expanded trauma recovery services to serve crime victims across Florida. I imagine you see folks, uh, in these situations, uh, at the well, is that right? Absolutely. And we're excited about not only the work that we're doing at the well, but the expansion of trauma recovery centers across, across the state of Florida. Trauma recovery centers are proven models of care mm. that provide a wide range of services in order to help crime survivors heal. It's, it is this model that inspired the centers that are in Miami, as well as St. Petersburg, where I get to serve as the executive director. And this year, we're supporting for funding for Jacksonville and Duval, as well as a TRC in St. Petersburg um, that's solely focused on crime survivors. We, you know, we support these funds um, because what we realize is that when people get real-time help, have support in navigating our justice system and our social service system, with people who have had similar experiences, their outcomes are better. Hmm. They're able to access the care that they need. They're able to um, talk about what happened to them in a way that helps um, helps the sentencing. I guess I will say that, and they heal much faster. Um, they're able to get back to work faster. They are able to um, be with their families during the um, crisis of grief faster, and they report that they are less lonely and isolated during the process. Mm. So we're actually supporting the funds for an expansion of the mental health and crisis support services offered by the families of slain children. And they have a really strong record of supporting crime victims and um, knowing that they will need ongoing support as we implement a TRC in their area. So I think um, the TRC model allows for real-time support, allows for an interdisciplinary or multi-sector way of looking at what individuals or families need in the moment of crisis and helps to disrupt the cycles of violence moving forward. So, um, again, marrying what we understand crime survivors, they really just want services to help support them in healing in the aftermath of victimization.
Can you take us into the well, uh, just to get into the weeds in this a little bit? If, if I'm a victim of a crime or, God forbid, let's say I lost a child uh, to, uh, to crime, and I come to the well, what, what sorts of services would I find? Oh, that's a beautiful question. So at the well, we implement the three core components. There's many other core co- components, but first we have assertive outreach. And so for some individuals who are kind of nervous about accessing care, we will meet the person either in the hospital or in the community site where um, or another location where they feel safe is having an intervention. And so our assertive outreach folks are the first individuals who will come and listen to their story. Mm. We're able to provide direct, concrete support right then. We connect them to victim um, advocates to help them with the victim's compensation documents. As you heard from Sabash, sometimes in the wake of violence, it is difficult to think about filling out a piece of paper. So our team team meets with them and provides Um, provides that assertive outreach and helps them to navigate that initial process. They're then provided on-site clinical care. So we have um, master level and um, doctoral level therapists who provide counseling not only for the individual, but the family that is attached. That's something that that is unique to St. Petersburg, that we take a family system approach. That is because individuals aren't harmed in isolation. They are harmed in community, and they're attached to family that also needs these services. Mm. So they get the counseling that they need. And the third thing that they have that we offer um, in real time is care management. We don't call people cases, but care management. Where we're thinking about all of the things that have been impacted as a result of this victimization experience and support in coordinating the services that would be helpful so if they need to ask for time off of work and don't have language to ask or they can't even bear witness, you know, bear the, the thought of asking their employer for additional time, our care managers will help support them through that. Or if they need to think about a funeral arrangement, we have our care managers um, and our um, outreach um, folks who will support them in making those arrangements. So really thinking about all of the areas that their lives have been impacted by and walking them through that process. They are eligible for drop-in services so they can join our support groups mm-hmm. as they choose, right? Or they can engage in um, intensive and clinical services that include psychiatric services if required. So the suite of services from someone that simply talk to, a drop-in space so you can get, um, so you know that you're not alone in your experience, a care manager who's going to help explain the resources and services that are available and walk and handhold you through that process, as well as direct clinical care. And in some instances, there's a need for real-time financial resources. And what's unique about um, the services and um, way that the Wells trauma unit is set up is we are able to pay some of those initial fees associated with the victimization experience or the social service navigation experience, which is often um, cost prohibitive, even with the best community support. So that's the care you will receive. Um, I'll say this last thing. I think out of all the things that we offer, what we are hearing from um, 
every survivor that comes through the door. It is being able to connect with somebody in real time, ask for what they need, and have that responded to, and meet with other people who have similar experiences. That is the that's the key to accessing everything else. We've had individuals who were not planning on navigating the um, process of reporting the victimization. And because of their work and getting the help that they need, they felt safer in sharing their story, reporting the incident, and having that case, um, having increased accountability by filing the police report. So it's not, it's, we are really advocating for the type of support that is necessary um, in order to get people the help that they need. And this is probably I, I, something that nobody been, plans on. Uh, you know, yeah, the folks you know, who are showing up at your door are, are in a state of surprise, shock, grief. Uh, imagine all those things mixed up. And I probably I imagine they could they, they, they welcome a helping hand in those moments. Absolutely. And as they come in asking or just showing up because someone was worried about them enough, Right. We sit with them and they have time. They have time, which um, because of the expansion of what what Sebastian sh shared around the reporting guidelines, there's additional time to be able to work with community providers like the well so that they can feel safe enough, sure enough and supported enough to ask for the help that they need through the victim's compensation process. This new expansion in Jacksonville is so needed as we are watching the rate of victimization occur. Um, the families um, for slain um, children, um, they have been doing this work. And so we just want to make sure that we are adequately investing in safety solutions. I believe TRCs are a safety solution that we need to look for um, and invest in this legislative session. And the only thing I want to highlight is you heard the level of care and commitment that Dr. Butler described a survivor should receive. The majority of survivors of violence in Florida, and what I mean by majority is I mean the overwhelming majority do not get that type of attention and care. Yeah. And the majority of survivors in Florida should get that attention and care. And we would have a much safer and healthier Florida if they did. And so our vision is exactly what Dr. Butler described in terms of the attention and care that a survivor gets and that the family gets, that every survivor in the state of Florida gets access to that level of care, that that's our ultimate vision. And, you know, we're trying to do that city by city, locale by locale, but that's our vision. How do you uh, get uh, lawmakers to listen? Th that's a great question. I mean, number one, we are speaking as survivors of violence that then our members know what it's like to live in unsafe communities. That's number one. And so one thing is, you know, we've been very blessed that because survivors in Florida have raised their voices, most of the legislative proposals that that survivors have been in support of have received near unanimous support from the state legislature. So that's what, one thing we're thankful of. Right. And so I think part of it is also like, look, a lot of us in the state of survivors of violence, a lot of us have, have have went through trauma, including some of our lawmakers. And so really highlighting our voice and highlighting a way forward where we talk about a comprehensive approach and a better vision of public safety for Florida, we're always confident that folks will meet us there. 
How do folks follow along uh, with your successes, uh, Survivors Speak Florida, um, you know, and, and through Crime Survivors and Safety for Safety and Justice? How, how do people follow you? Yes, uh, uh, you can follow us at uh, at cssj.org is the first way you can follow us. And then, you know, um, on Tuesday, you know, uh, on Tuesday, you could definitely follow us in the state capital, but cssj.org. Very good. Uh, thanks to both of our guests, a local trauma and violence expert and um, uh, co-founder of The Well in St. Pete, LaDonna Butler. Uh, and also uh, Alliance for Safety and Justice State Director Subhash Katil. Uh, we really appreciate you and good luck on, uh, on Tuesday. Thank you so much. Hi. We're uh, turning now in the second half of the show uh, to uh, another guest in studio. This week, the Florida Education Commission unanimously approved two rules that will apply to Florida's 28 state colleges. One prohibits spending on diversity efforts. The other removes sociology as an option to fulfill state requirements for what are known as general education or core courses that students have to take. The Board of Governors meets next week, uh, and they're expected to take a final vote on the same measure as it pertains to the state's universities. Here to help us unpack what this means for colleges and students and why Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz Jr. doesn't exactly like sociology is Divya Kumar. Welcome to the studio, Divya. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, glad you're here. Um, uh, Divya covers higher ed for the Tampa Bay Times and has been writing about this topic. Um, first of all, 10 sociology departments have written to the state university system warning officials against removing so the sociology option. They said that uh, entrance exams in other fields, including medicine and law, have sociology elements on tests and that courses have been, quote, an integral part of higher education for nearly two centuries. What's afoot? What is this? Uh, wh where is this coming from? The uh, the pushback against sociology? Yeah, and I think that's something that's kind of been interesting to figure out. And I think this week is sort of where we heard the first kind of explanation, um, where I guess the belief is that sociology kind of contradicts um, the, I guess the people deciding decided that sociology contradicts um, Senate Bill 266, right. um, which passed and kind of came into effect last year. And that bill kind of lays out um, some general rules for what can and can't be in general education courses. Um, and one of the things there is they say they don't want um, speculative or unproven content. And a lot of people say like that applies to like any academic discipline where there's a lot of unproven content. Um, but I think what right, we deal all the time in academia and theory and exploratory subject matter and so forth, right? Why is this different? Right. There are people who are saying there might be math courses that, you know, have the same stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think what was sort of said at this state board meeting um, was, you know, kind of the same rhetoric we've been hearing um, where this was in the same standing of their anti-DEI uh, push. They don't want students radicalized, um, you know, that they that sociology teaches these unproven theories and um, that is something that the state's leaders felt was better to be learned outside of a general ed course. This is a pushback in general against quote-unquote woke ideology, right? And that word comes out of Manny Diaz Jr.'s mouth all the time. Uh, uh, 
is there precedent for this? Uh, is this a brand new effort? Uh, I've not heard of any attacks on sociology courses in higher ed in, in, the, in the past. Why now? Why all of a sudden? Is it just because Manny Diaz Jr.? That's a good question. And that's something that um, you know, I'm very curious to kind of learn more about and um, how sociology kind of became this sort of hot button point. I think, you know, seen similar things with women and gender studies um, recently, um, but I, that's definitely... The push is against also like identity politics, right? right. And I'm, I'm, it's been a minute since I've been in college at Arkansas Tech University, not in the state of Florida. Uh, but some of the leaders who have opposed this move uh, wrote that, quote, sociology is a field of science that seeks to understand the social causes and consequences of human behavior. It seeks to identify patterns of organization and change in social life, end quote. Uh, you know, a wide range of professions, including law, medicine, and public health, have relied on principles of sociology, uh, those leaders said. And the entrance exams for medical school and law school recommend coursework in the subject. Um, and they noted that companies like Apple and Google have said they want recruits with backgrounds in sociology. So here it sounds like we have the state of Florida um, sort of usurping that uh, that desire from these big corporations by stripping that away from students. I, I'm... Uh, I'm not sure uh, where uh, where this comes from. But how does this play out? Does this mean layoffs in sociology departments? Do you know that yet? I think that's a good question that it sort of remains to be seen. I think that's a concern that a lot of department um, leaders had in terms of what that would mean for resources. Um, the sociology is still going to be available, um, you know, as a discipline. People can still take that course even if it doesn't count um, for state requirements, but. I think the question is how likely will people be to sign up for something that's not meeting one of their requirements when their schedules are already packed and they're trying to, um, you know, do everything that they need to graduate in time. Um, but I think that's a concern that um, departments had, heads have raised kind of will that sort of limit. Um, I think right now there's like thousands of people every year that sign up for this course. And so what does that mean if like the demand is lower? Um, Will that impact their resources? Will that impact people who want to come here? Will that mean people will be leaving with their research dollars um, for other places? And right. Big concerns. Um, let's talk now about uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, this is uh, also has been, uh, has been a target of the DeSantis administration f uh, for a couple of years now. Um, so, uh, does this uh, does this new move uh, eradicate DEI in the state's colleges? And also, is there a difference between state colleges and universities? Is that uh, they're, they're, we're talking about two different groups, right? But universities are in line to have uh, the DEI programs looked at when the board of governors governors meets next week. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, for the twelve public universities, um, both the sociology rule and the DEI rule will be up for vote on Wednesday. Yeah. Um, um, and then the Board of Education just voted for the, the state colleges. Gotcha. What are they And what are they doing specifically in regards to DEI? Yeah, that's a very interesting question where I think a lot of people are wondering what exactly falls under this and what doesn't. Um, but basically, colleges, um, as of right now, and possibly universities if it passes, um, won't be able to spend uh, state or federal dollars on... Uh, DEI programs advocating for DEI and the, the 
rule kind of defines what they consider DEI, which is classification um, by sex, color, gender, gender identity, um, sexual orientation. And I think their belief is that anything that classifies people into this group or gives preferential or differential treatment um, should not be allowed. They do put some carve-outs in. Um, so student organizations are still able to spend um, student fees um, or things that are funded by student fees. That's still permissible. Um, and then I think there's also carve-outs for military veterans, programs that support access, um, first-generation students, um, and Pell-eligible students. There's a whole sort of list of um, kind of exemptions to that. But I think the qu question sort of is, and there's also, there's a rule that says um, can't promote, I think, social issues or political issues. And so they kind of try to define um, political and social issues, which is a lot of professors kind of feel like, well, this kind of covers just about everything. So what can and can't you do? And I think um, a lot of that confusion is sort of um, where people are trying to figure out like w what the line What's is. next, yeah. Uh, but I know a lot of colleges and universities actually, actually have offices set up to support diversity and equity and inclusion, and that means the recruitment of a diverse student population. Um, those are now eliminated. Is that, is that what we're uh, led to believe with this? I guess I, I, you know, that's something that I kind of want to find out what, how that looks like, because I think there are still services that those offices, um, you know, have that will be allowed under the law. So things like access for veterans or access for first time in college students that some of those offices were handling, they'll still be allowed to do that. And I think things that um, are sort of required to comply with federal or, um, you know, state laws, whether that's like Title IX or, um things, offices of like discrimination complaints. So some of those things like in those functions will still um, be allowed to exist. I think the question is what happens to some of these other programs and initiatives that these universities were offering. Yeah. Have you spoken to uh, people in these offices at state universities or heard from them? Uh, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion officers, uh, for instance, what, what, are the, what are their thoughts on this? I actually, I haven't. And I think that's, there's some, I think there is a lot of fear about talking about some of these things right now, um, where there's kind of some uncertainty around. So I think there's... Maybe folks want to let the dust settle a little bit. Yeah, I, that's the sense that I'm sort of getting. Interesting. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF. You can call in at 813 239 9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Uh, we are on with uh, Divya Kumar, uh, who covers higher ed for the uh, Tampa Bay Times. And we're talking about this move uh, just a couple of days ago. The Board of Governor, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Florida Education Commission unanim unanimously approved two rules that will apply to Florida's 28 state colleges. One prohibits spending on diversity efforts and the other removes sociology as an option to fulfill state requirements for what are known as the general ed or core courses that all students must take. And I'm particularly interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I wonder if you think... Um, that uh, the the uh, cease on spending on these programs will have an immediate effect on colleges and universities. Is there any, any evidence to suggest that? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of kind of concerns raised through the process of this bill passing. Um, 
particularly about what some of that means for um, researchers who there's a lot of there's I think there's a lot of grants and stuff that have um, components that kind of ask people to show that um, there are those uh, initiatives involved in what they're doing. I think, you know, prior to this, I think in 2020, there was a huge push from universities to kind of introduce a lot of um, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. It was um, celebrated. Right, right. It was, um, you know, there was new stuff coming and that was, you know, what people were hearing about. And um, so I think it'll be interesting to kind of see like what happens to some of that and, you know, where, what, what that means for ultimately what that means for students and the student experience um, of what it means to go to college right now. I'm curious if any listeners are involved in uh, college or university DEI efforts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Call us at 813-239-9663 and let us know uh, how, this, how this new move is going to affect you or your program. Um, uh, Divya, what is next? It feels like this is a ball that is rolling uh, downhill. Are, is there anything on the horizon that is uh, sort of, uh, again, in, in keeping with this anti-woke uh, 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 motif from this administration? Are there things that we should be uh, on, the, on the lookout for coming up? Um, I think what's kind of interesting, um, I think this legislative session looks a little bit quieter um, than some of the past. And I think there's still a lot of implementation that needs to happen um, with some of the things that passed during the last couple uh, legislative sessions. So I think in upcoming Board of Governors meetings, that'll still be interesting to follow. And then also what that actually looks like in terms of the rollout at uh, universities um, to kind of understand what is actually going to be the, the sort of legwork that needs to happen to make this actually um, take place. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, let's go to a caller now. Uh, uh, Nancy uh, from St. Pete, you're on the air. Hi. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thanks for calling. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, DEI uh, kicked the hornet's nest, didn't it? It did, it seems like. <laughs> please don't. Please just do it. Don't uh, be a beekeeper kind of a person, not like Jason Statham, but... Be the kind of uh, beekeeper that uh, is uh, concerned with the hive. <clears throat> Excuse me, just as you are, and um, you know, and and do the right. Continue doing the right thing. Don't let these people that that uh, you know are old Florida crackers, uh, you know, discourage you, because you know uh, they've been in charge all these years, and it's been nothing but but disaster. Mm. And uh, here we are with uh, more of the same, and um, to to allow this to go by the wayside would be such a tragedy, such a travesty for everybody involved. And uh, those the the, the uh, I want to call them rednecks. I want to call them crackers. I want to call them. Um, they call us elites. Are you kidding? I'm <laughs> from high school, and I know what's right. right. You know, it's you've got to know what's right. And they are so concerned with with uh, keeping their gated community and their, you know, and their their bank accounts and their portfolios going, and you know, and and everybody else, you know, they've been keeping them, you know, at a bay all this time, and now there's a chance 
for people to actually have equity and inclusion, you know, and, and what was the other one? Uh, inclusion. Uh, diversity. And diversity. Well, that's all the same. Right. You know, we're all people, for heaven's sake. Right. And when you say race, we, you know, that, that, that's a concept that came up when people wanted to keep people at bay. Oh, my God, those people are different than right. us. And so we've got to keep them away from us. And the more the people have the best stuff, you know, the more the people have have what what we as as Americans think that we should have, yeah. then we should all have it, not just a few. Uh, that's all. That's my. Thank you so far. much, Nancy. We appreciate the call. Thank you, Divya. What does the Florida Education Commission look like? I mean, is that a diverse body uh, racially, demographically? Well, what is happening? Who is who's in charge of them? Is right. it the, it wouldn't be the, the Congress, would it? You know, Florida congressional folks that are Republicans, and they're just all oh, they've always been just absolutely bet. You know what? Crazy. And uh, you know, I, thanks for not cursing, Nancy. Oh, you're so <laughs> I don't know where that I'm, button is. I'm 78 years old, and it's, it's hard to restrain myself sometimes. 78. So, Thank yeah, you so I, much. I grew up down here. I grew up in this area. Yeah. Here, out in Indian Rocks Beach. Did you? And you yeah. you went to high school. Did you make it into higher ed? Went to Largo High School. No, I did. I did two years of junior college, and and um, and uh, got pregnant and had a baby and. And uh, man, I'll tell you, back then, God, you kidding? You had, you know you got like a dollar twenty five an hour. For, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're still trying to get back to the good old days. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. But don't let them do it. And uh, I uh, I taught for one semester and people. Yeah, huh? sure enough, I taught for one semester at uh, the University of I'm sorry, two semesters, great semesters at the University of South Florida just a couple of years ago, and uh, was pleased to see, honestly, anecdotally of course, but pleased to see a very diverse student population, uh, both uh, both in terms of race and also in terms of age. Um, it, it, it concerns me uh, that uh, a, a cease in spending on, on, on what we're calling diversity is uh, going to lead to sort of more white bread uh, institutions. Uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like it takes that much pullback for, um, you know, for us to lose this thing that we've spent so long trying to build. I return to you, though, Divya, is the, is the, uh, the, the folks in charge of this, the folks making this decision, are they a diverse body? Do you know? Well, I think um, what's kind of important to sort of consider of who they are and kind of the power structure of how they're sort of appointed. Yeah. Um, a lot of that comes from the governor's office itself. And so I think um, people are kind of chosen um, to be in those decision-making powers um, for, for a reason. It makes sense. Uh, uh, David writes in, and thanks for this email, David. Demanding diversity and inclusion is what the Tampa Five protest was all about. If you remember the Tampa Five who were arrested at USF, Ray Law and our state uh, state's attorneys continued to try to change the narrative right up until dropping of the dropping of felony violence charges, disrupting the group's lives for almost a year. Not just Tally, but here at home as well. Uh, thanks, Dave, in Tampa. Um, 
Uh, we uh, we talked for just a moment uh, before about how you expect to see a, a sort of a little quieter in this legislative session. But are there big items on the horizon that you that you've heard uh, talked about that folks should be aware of? Things coming down the pike uh, in this vein. Uh, elimination of, uh, you know, which seems anti-intellectual to me, but the elimination of sociology as a core component and also the cease of spending on DEI programs. Anything big like that coming uh, coming towards us? There was a bill, um, I think, kind of related to... Um, I, I don't think it was specified, but I th- it seems to be a result of sort of pro-Palestine protests and um, kind of... Uh, put the kibosh on uh, that type of talk, that type of, type of activity. Right. Yeah. Um, but there are currently two lawsuits um, going on already on the memo that was sort of sent um, currently to sort of shut down or to advise the universities to um, deactivate these groups. So I'm not sure where that is or what traction um that's going to have, but I know that was something introduced. To, something to pay attention to. I wonder if uh, I, I wonder if anybody out there listening has any thoughts about this. Call us at eight one three two three nine nine six six three. Getting a phone call right now. You can also send us an email at dj at wmnf dot org. Um, and we're talking today, of course, about uh, uh, the Florida Education Commission's move to. Uh, approved two new rules that apply to Florida's 28 state colleges uh, recently this week. One prohibits spending on diversity efforts and the other removes sociology as an option to fulfill uh, state requirements for what are known as general education or core courses that all students must take. Um, And let's go to a call now. Jim in St. Pete, you're on the air. Hello, um, I'm Jimmy from St. Pete. I'm a graduate from USF and... uh Go Bulls. Raymond, Raymond, I majored in history, and I believe history's come, becoming under attack, too. And, you know, Raymond Arsenal, he was my professor there. Good man. And it just sounds like um, it's anti-educational. It does. It has, this, it has this veneer of anti-intellectualism, doesn't it? Yes, sir. And I, and I don't know who's making the laws, but I don't think they're educators. Are they educators? Uh, Divya? No, I think, you know, some have said they've communicated with educators while uh, coming up with this, but I think a a lot of uh, university faculty would would question that. Yeah. Jim, you still with us? Yes, sir. How, uh, so uh, how long ago did you graduate from USF? It was, uh, oh, two, I think. Oh, two. Yeah. Did, did did you uh, take any sociology courses, or was that a part of your your instruction? Yeah, there? you know, I can't even remember sociology being a required course, but it's the same as history and um, psychology. And if you take um, courses away, that's just taken away from education, I believe. And I, I appreciate you bringing up this um, topic and and and. Um, you know, trying to fight for uh, the right thing to do. It's important to talk about this stuff. Uh, thank you very much for your call, Jim and St. Pete. We appreciate it. Um, 
the uh, by striking sociology as an as an option, uh, Diaz said the number of available courses for social sciences would come back down to six instead of seven, and half of them would satisfy a new requirement for civics education. They did talk about uh, introducing uh, uh, more learning along the lines of uh, Western civilization, the philosophical foundation of Western civilization uh, as a part of the core courses. Uh, and, and, the, and the new language says uh, the, the core courses should, whenever applicable, provide instruction on the historical background and philosophical foundation of Western civilization and this nation's historical documents, such as the Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and subsequent amendments and the Federalist Papers. Um, uh, has Diaz talked about uh, this effort? And like, I, I wonder if you're able to say anything at all about what, whether this is his move in particular, or is this coming from higher than him? I think some. So some of that came, was part of the language in um, Senate Bill Two Six Six, and I think so. The alternative that they now have on the list, which actually that list of gen ed courses um, prior to sociology being struck out um, was reviewed by by university and college faculty and they kind of came up with this list and they added an option um, which has now come to replace sociology but it was um, I think it's an intro to American history course prior to 1877 right Um, and so I think that's their focus as well you'll learn about American civilization and um, all those concepts in in that. Yeah, uh, annual enrollment, we should point out, in the introductory sociology courses, uh, according to your reporting, uh, averages about 2,000 students at the University of Central Florida, 1,700 at USF, 1,600 at the University of Florida, 1,200 at Florida State University, 1,000 students at Florida Atlantic University, and 850 at Florida International University to the department heads, heads wrote. So if sociology is struck, those students evidently will have to find uh, alternative courses to take. Is that right? Yeah. So I think right now people would still be able to take that if they wanted to, um, but it wouldn't count toward their requirement. Um, right. And I think with kind of students trying to graduate in time, I think if someone was majoring in sociology, they would probably definitely still take that course. But I think maybe a student with a different major who may have been curious to learn more about this or um, kind of want to take that might now f- have more hurdles to jump through to figure out how that fits into their their schedule. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Bob Whitmore re, uh, writes, uh, absolutely anti-intellectual. A lot of thinking on the right believes progressive thinking is abhorrent. I wonder uh, if in, in this effort to um, linguistically root out um, uh, the, the sort of, uh, y- you know, theory and um, the th- things that go into thinking about sociology and how human behavior and how we interact and how we get together. I wonder uh, if, if as they try to escort out the identity politics, if this doesn't usher in a different kind of identity politics, right? Uh, uh, more foundational sort of white-centric uh, identity politics. That's, of course, the concern here. Uh, you're listening to The Skinny on WMNF. Uh, we got a few more minutes here, and we, we're happy to take your calls. Please please join us at 813-239-9663 or send an email like Bob did, uh, dj at wmnf.org. What else are you working on, Divya? 
I think just kind of trying to see um, the impact of all this. And um, the last couple of years have been sort of one thing after the other um, in higher ed. And I think the universities are still kind of dealing with um, what that means. Um, I think one thing people have sort of been talking about this brain drain, um, is that actually going to continue? Are people going to be leaving? Are people wanting to come here? And also are students wanting to um, keep studying here? And you know, what is the quality of the education they're getting? So kind of trying to track the impact of all of this that's happened and kind of see, are there ways that we can sort of measure that fallout? If what, and you've done some reporting on the brain drain. Uh, what, what, what is Florida, uh, what has Florida lost uh, so far? And what, what, what do we stand to lose? Yeah, I think we were definitely starting to see early signs of, um, of that. And, um, you know, people feeling that they could no longer teach the things that they were hired to teach. Um, people, I think, I think the union had done a survey saying that a pretty significant um, percentage of faculty had been looking or planned to look um, elsewhere to leave the state. Um, and that I think the ultimate thing there is, well, then who's left to teach the students who are, who are here? Um, who's left to teach the students? Yeah, that's going to be a big question uh, to pay attention to in the future. And we've got one more call coming in. Um, we'll hold for just a moment. Um, Divya, anything else that you're, I'm sorry, let's take this call before we cut off here. Frank, we've got about a minute. Are you with us, Frank? Yes, hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Okay, um, I, I hear presidential candidates talking about civics lessons being required, and they insist that we are founded on a Judeo-Christian basis when in actuality it was a deist foundation. Yeah. So how are these people going to be in charge of our education system? Yeah, it's a fine question. Uh, it's a fine question. Uh, I think it is, is all a question of perspective, right? Uh, you know, for years, uh, the colleges and universities barely, if ever, made any news, and it feels like more and more this is sort of a central beat. Uh, is that how you feel, Divya? Yeah, I think well, education at every level has kind of come under a lot of scrutiny. Education at every level is coming under scrutiny. That's what we're paying attention to. Folks, we're out of time. If uh, We sure appreciate you joining us uh, here on The Skinny, 88.5 WMNF. Uh, and thanks to Skip, who's been working the boards, Irene, who's uh, taken phone calls. Thanks to all of our callers. Uh, thanks to Divya Kumar. Follow her work in the Tampa Bay Times. And stay tuned for Art in Your Ear with Joe Ellen coming up next.